Welcome to Saving the Game. This is episode 57, Playing for Small Stakes, recorded Thursday, February 19th of 2015, with your hosts, Grant, Peter, and Josh. Welcome to Saving the Game. I'm Grant. I'm Peter. Oh, and I'm Josh. Hey, we've got Josh Jordan with us of, let's see, Ginger Goat Games, Tell Me Another. Anything else? I, you've got a big list of stuff that you do, Josh. My hands are in many pies, but I think those are the two internet pies. Well, there we go. So uh, tell us a little bit about yourself and why you're on our show and what makes you famous on said internet. <laughs> okay, well, I'm trying to give you the the humble version because it feels weird whenever the word famous is applied to anyone who's in our little gaming world. But I guess, first of all, I'm a fan of the show. I've listened to several episodes and I like it. Oh, thank you. And I am a game designer. I am a sometimes pastor. These days I'm an English teacher, but game designer, storyteller, person who's obsessed with talking about anything in those worlds and or matters of faith. I'm always happy to have conversations about all that good stuff. Excellent. Yes, folks, we've had game designers, we've had podcasters, and we've had pastors, but now we have a game designing podcasting pastor. With your powers combined. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Indeed. So, yeah, let's talk about Tell Me Another first. Sure. Tell Me Another is a podcast that's a little bit over a year old. It's an interview show where I and whichever co-hosts I can convince to join me on a particular evening interview a professional storyteller, which means everything from a game designer to a poet to a stand-up comedian or any other weird thing that I can think of. It's been harder than you'd think to get a, a preacher scheduled to come on the show. So there are a few holes in the kind of storyteller that I would like to get on the show, but... We basically have this crazy theory that different kinds of storyteller can steal tricks from each other. So we ask people, you know, what their inspiration is, what kind of themes they like to use, and what they would say to someone just kind of starting out professionally. And there's a great deal of overlap in the advice from, say, like a novelist to, I don't know, an improv actor and the sorts of sorts of techniques that they use to prepare and hone their craft. Awesome. I do enjoy Tell Me Another. Uh, I haven't listened to every episode, but the ones I have heard are really fascinating because I think because of the variety of storytellers that you have on the show from all these seemingly disparate areas of storytelling that all kind of tend to come together and have that little bit of overlap that makes a contiguous thread throughout the show. It's really pretty fascinating stuff. I think I appreciate that. And then, of course, you've also got Ginger Goat Games. Yes, we have published, depending on how you count, at least three, maybe more, role-playing slash LARP games. The biggest being Heroin, which is a game that kind of emulates Wizard of Oz, Alice's Adventures in Wonderland, that sort of story where a girl gets whisked away and has to find her way home from a magical land. Mm-hmm to the smallest that's in print is Doll, which comes on the postcard and is a creepy little 20-minute game for two players and a toy that sometimes lies. Marvelous. 
Yes, in general, <laughs> fun little story games that fill niches that I wanted to play. Right, very much in that indie space, but still, uh, still pretty interesting stuff. Thank you. And I'll put links to both Ginger Goat Games and Tell Me Another in the show notes if you're interested in those, and I think you should be, listeners. Go check those out. Any other news and notes? Peter, you got anything? Nothing's really changed since our last episode. Awesome. I actually don't have anything either, which is weird for me. Well, let's get right into our scripture, shall we? Josh, do you want to take first pick? Sure. I'll gladly read Genesis 25, verses 29 to 34. Okay, have at. Go for it. Once, when Jacob was cooking some stew, Esau came in from the open country, famished. He said to Jacob, Quick, let me have some of that red stew. I'm famished. That's why he was also called Edom. Jacob replied, First sell me your birthright. Look, I'm about to die, Esau said. What good is the birthright to me? But Jacob said, Swear to me first. So he swore an oath to him, selling his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau some bread and some lentil stew. He ate and drank and then got up and left. So Esau despised his birthright. And our next bit of scripture is Matthew 20, verses 29 to 31. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Yet not one of them will fall to the ground outside your father's care. And even the very hairs of your head are all numbered. So don't be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows. And our last one is Luke sixteen ten to 12 Whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. And whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. So if you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? And if you have not been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you property of your own? So if you can't tell from the theme running through those scripture excerpts, our topic tonight is all the little small but important things, small stakes. And Josh, you brought this topic up for us. Tell us why the topic of playing for small stakes interests you and what that means to you. Let me start by saying that I love playing big stakes some of the time. You know, I've, I've played many a superhero game or a D&D campaign, and whenever I hang out with my high school buddies or with my brother, that's what we tend to play. So I've killed many goblins in my day, but I feel like there are lots of movies and books and other kinds of stories that I like that don't tell that kind of story. So it's strange to me that we, as gamers, don't play small stake stories. So, for example, in Alice in Wonderland or in The Wizard of Oz, not a whole lot of people die. And you could argue that there's never really a chance for the main character to die. But no mm-hmm. one ever reads those stories and says, oh, nothing happens in this because no one dies. They're playing for smaller stakes but it's still a very compelling story. And I feel like, at least some of the time, we should we should game that way. I have to agree with you. I think there's a lot of value in those smaller, less epic stories. I'll tell you where I think it comes from and where, why I think it's such a dominant part of the, the GM's toolkit. I think a lot of times people use scope as a crutch to get players engaged. They think, well, the bigger the story is the more my players will be engaged with it. Well, and the funny thing is, at least from my personal experience, oftentimes the opposite is true. Like, the stories in our Inspectors and our Shadowrun games, none of those are major stakes. It's all small-scale stuff. 
Yeah. You know, it's one haunted theater or one haunted park. Uh, in the inspector's game, it's, you know, it's a small job to sabotage an energy drink release in the Shadowrun game. <laughs> and that stuff has been really fun because it's like, well, the fate of the world doesn't hinge on this. So you can interact with the other characters, both player and non-player more. And, you know, there's more room to do outlandish things without worrying that you're going to be dooming millions. <laughs> I wonder, too, if some of it is that the GM just secretly wants to impress. The GM just wants to have this big, epic, look how awesome my story is story, and is substituting that for an interesting story that really matters to the characters and the players. I think it's really easy to go from the last time you saved this one person, this time you're going to save the city, next time you're going to save the whole world. Like mm-hmm. for for adventure games, especially when our power as characters is exponentially increasing it's fairly natural for, the, for that to be the default state but i mean just because it's usually that way doesn't mean it should always be that way i think that's probably true across any sort of serial medium whether it be a game that you keep coming back to or a series of games or comics or tv shows <laughs> and movies i mean Think about Superman. Superman did not start off as somebody who flies out to the edge of the universe regularly to fight giant cosmic monsters. But over the course of his run, he's gone from the guy saving people falling off buildings in Metropolis to that character. And they, the writers keep trying to bring him back to that, but that path's been blazed and trodden down so well that he always ends up fighting the things no one else can fight because that's the scope he's at now. To, to tangent a little bit from there, one of the things that I think is interesting is some of the the most elite and formidable people in the real world, like your special forces troops, they're not always going after, you know, the really big bad guys, the, the Bond villains of the modern world. Right. They'll send those guys in sometimes to rescue, like, humanitarian aid workers that are in the path of a local civil war. Mm-hmm. That's not a national security thing in most cases. It's just, hey, these are citizens of our country. We're going to go in and pull them out so they don't get massacred. Peter, I, I like what you're saying because it's, I mean, when I think of small stakes, I think of sort of the buy-in of the characters like rather than are we going to die, let's talk about is my wife going to leave me? Because that's that's a big stake for the character, but it's smaller than death. But what you're saying is, okay, and even in a, so it's sort of like another axis is the, even in the, okay, we're playing where we might die, but the stakes for the whole world are not, you know, is this country going to collapse? It's, are these hostages, these humanitarian aid workers going to be saved? So it's like, there's the stakes for the character and there's also the stakes for the world of the story could be larger or smaller and i love the idea of of playing around with both yeah i confess when i was looking at this i was i was thinking more along the lines of the stakes for the world and then when you came on and mentioned that you were thinking more along the lines of the stakes for the characters i was like huh i didn't even consider that what's wrong with me there (laughs) Ah, it's okay (laughs) i gotta say one of the best games i played at fear the con 5 featured a thing like this it was um uh, someone we'd had on the show before shannon dixon was running a game where the stakes were these heraldic creatures that a wizard had created you know the 
two-headed eagle and all these other ridiculous mythological creatures that are used in heraldry, a wizard had made them, they'd all gotten out, and the game was, go get them back. But it was fantastic, because it was a matter of, what can we do to get these creatures back, and can we use our skills for it? We're small-time, and we're doing small-time things, but that doesn't make it any less of an interesting challenge. Yeah, one of my favorite gaming experiences with my wife has been GMing a game for her. And I think her favorite session, this was a D&D, like a third edition, I want to say, game. One of her favorite things was relatively minor in my plot as a GM. It was the opportunity to get a, a rare flying rabbit animal companion. And <laughs> just that was the goal. Like the whole side business of, are you going to stop this revolution? You know, she was willing to go along with that, but her buy-in was much higher for the will you save the cute fuzzy creature. And I think it'd be easy to say, oh, that's just because she was playing the girl gamer. But I think that, I, I don't think that that's what was going on. I think that it was a buy-in for her and that, oh, this is something that I specifically want for my character. And yes, I'll let the GM have his big cosmic plot, but I want to go after this this cute little thing first. And that's, I think, another big reason and I think you guys have hit on this before, that these stories work so well when they're part of another story. They create a really nice contrast between the big epic plot that you have going on and the small things that matter day to day for everybody. And they can build on themselves to become part of this epic story. You know, we've talked about episodic structures of storytelling before on the show where you have a problem that gets solved and then the resolution creates a subsequent problem and it all builds on itself going forward. But having these little things come up as plots to, to deal with or things that players want to solve, they really emphasize the, the rich detail of the world. The world is not all about the epic monster and the epic quest, it's a real world populated by real people who have real needs. Uh, and another thing, something else that I think it matters a lot, it matters more than I think people realize, it gets tiresome trying to keep an epic story going all the time. <laughs> it's, it's fatiguing. Yeah, world-saving fatigue is a real thing. Yeah, it, it <laughs> really like, is. You kind of, after going through some of those plots, especially if there's been several of them wedged into the same campaign, it kind of gets to the point where it's like, ugh, can we please just save a town from a flood or something? Well, and I think it, the scope loses its punch. Oh, the world's in peril again. Well, and like Josh said earlier in the episode, you know, Oh, this guy's in peril. Oh, this town's in peril. Oh, the city's in peril. Oh, the, you know, kingdom's in peril. The world's in peril. The universe is in peril. The, you know, the multiverse is in peril. It's like, okay, <laughs> you know? Yeah. We're at a scale that I can't even really comprehend anymore. And that stops being relevant to the character that you have on your sheet or that you've envisioned. I think that's another big, important piece of it. What is my character in all this? You know, it's like... Every once in a great while, I'll have a character, and I'll just decide, you know what? This guy is wealthy beyond his wildest dreams. I'm going to have him retire. And I've actually gotten resistance from other players because I don't think they were at that point of fatigue yet for their particular character. But it's like, mm -hmm. oh, I'm essentially a millionaire, and I, I was the poor orphan kid. 
So why don't I just retire before I die on the off chance that my character dies and come back with a different character and tell a different story? And other players are like, oh, but we haven't, like you said, Peter, we haven't saved the multiverse yet. So I think that may have been an opportunity in, it, it may have made everyone happy if we had just taken a break and done a smaller scale story for a couple of sessions. And then who knows, maybe I would have been ready to continue with my character and like, especially if something dramatically personal had changed, then maybe I'd be ready to jump back in there as now I have another reason to make it another million dollars and save this branch of the multiverse because I know that that's what my mom wants me to do. Yeah. Well, and I want to come back around to, to something you just said. These these smaller ones are personal. I think in, in role-playing, we may be kind of are a little bit blinded to other forms of media where a lot of smaller stories do get told. Most TV shows, especially the cop show or crime drama from either side of the law, are not dealing with world-cracking stakes. Mm -hmm. And generally speaking... To go back to the other axis that, you know, we established at the beginning, most of the time the detective character isn't in mortal peril either. Mm -hmm. Columbo comes to mind. You know, he got right. threatened a few times, but... He's in peril at the season finale and its cliffhanger. That's about it. Yeah. And that works. It only works if he is in peril rarely, right? If the detective is in peril... Every single episode, it stops losing its punch. <laughs> well, it stops being Columbo and becomes 24. Okay, yes, there's that. But it stops having that same punch. You go, oh, yeah, he's going to get out of this one. Mm -hmm. And no one says, or very few people say, oh, man, every episode of this cop show is exactly the same. I guess maybe after 19 seasons of Law & Order, a few people started to say that, but the show was insanely popular and lasted a really long time, even though it has a very clear structure because the stakes feel real for each particular case. And very rarely did anything happen directly to the, like, if you consider the cop or the lawyer, the protagonist. No, the, the protagonists, quote unquote, of the show are really just the people around whom the story happens. The story is the other characters who kind of weave in amongst the main characters of the show every episode, you know, the various witnesses, the defendant, you know, the victims. It's their story as framed by the police procedural. That's really where the drama is. And those are always small stories. They're personal level stories of petty or, you know, sometimes not so petty crimes, but we're never talking grand treason on Law & Order. Right. Yeah. There's some others, too, that use this kind of same kind of lower stake structure. Uh, medical dramas, typically you're just trying to save one patient or maybe contain a small outbreak. Uh, there's certainly exceptions like the Andromeda strain and stuff, but mm -hmm. that's more science fiction. And, and those are movies. You'll note those, you know, every yeah. exception I can think of is a movie where this is a big deal. It's one big epic story. And I'm not saying, and I don't think any of us are saying, that epic stories are bad in some way but having a contrast is so important so that the epic story continues to matter and stand out 
Yeah, interestingly, I think one TV show that did both fairly well was Star Trek The Next Generation. You'd occasionally have that crew dealing with, you know, the Borg or the Romulans or some other massive threat queue. Mm -hmm. But a lot of the time it was some quirky little backwater planet or the holodeck is malfunctioning or something along those lines. It did it well. Uh, Stargate SG-1 did it extremely well. Yeah, I was thinking Next Generation, but SG-1 is good because... There's very obviously like a like a season arc and then an episode arc. So it's like, okay, we have plenty of goofy, or if not goofy, at least self-contained problems for the characters. And then we also have, there's always at least one big bad that we have to save the human race from. Yeah, and the nice thing about SG-1 is their episodic sequence built on itself. They had these little story arcs. But all of those little story arcs added up to a big story. They weren't independent of the larger story that was happening around them. You had a couple of one-off episodes, but most of the time, every episode added to the story and pushed it forward. And, you know, the other thing that is really important about it is there's a small cast of characters there, and we get to know them in those little episodic sequences and when they're dealing with those small stakes, so that when they start dealing with the big issues, we already kind of know how those characters are going to deal with it. We're not guessing it, and we're not introducing new characters who we have no concept of and feel like a deus ex machina at best. Well, and that does apply in role-playing games, too. I mean, in the to use the Shadowrun game again as an example, we've got a small cast of NPCs that we interact with or at least reference on a regular basis. Sand, mm-hmm. Old Man Wu, there's a number of those characters around that are just kind of in our player characters' lives. Yeah. They're very infrequently, if ever, in any kind of peril, but they're still there. They're still another thing for the characters to interact with. And I think in a smaller stakes kind of a situation, you can go in and talk to Sand and have him be a goofy, you know, friendly Russian troll with potato vodka in a mason jar and have those kind of funny, entertaining moments with him. Whereas if it was a, you know, a world cracking thing, you'd come in and all of that stuff would just get brushed to the side because it's like, OK, we need this, this, this and this. And we're on this timetable and we've got to move now. Yeah. You lose all of that on the the larger stakes sometimes. Yeah. And one place I've fallen down in the Shadowrun game is pulling in the same antagonists over and over so that you know them. It's always a different antagonist, and that's kind of okay, but you, well, you can't that's learn. testament to our group's effectiveness, too. Uh, some of it is, but at the same time, I have not set up any sort of recurring villain whom you get to know. True. You don't get to know them when it's the final boss battle and it's the first time you've seen them. And this is a mistake I think a lot of uh, JRPGs make. You have a recurring villain that you fight throughout the game, And then they kind of go, oh, wait, here's the real big bad. And it's some big epic thing, but you don't know anything about it. You have no connection to it as a player. It's not an antagonist. It's some numbers to reduce until they hit zero. And then you get the you win screen. You know, you get the end of the story at that point. That particular flaw in JRPGs has always frustrated me going all the way back to the to the NES. It's always, aha, bait and switch. Well, you know, if we're going to use that example, I think that's one thing that the Mass Effect series did really well. They let you think that uh, Saren was the big bad for a little while. Then they introduced the threat of the Reapers. They had you interact with one of them. I'll actually was... uh, do you one better. You first had the Geth. Yeah, that's true. And then you had Saren. And, and then you had the Reapers. 
And then the interaction with, uh, was it Sovereign or Harbinger? I forget which was the first one. Mm. Whichever one that was in the first game, some person who's an even bigger Mass Effect fan than me is screaming at their <laughs> podcast right now. Of course. But, <laughs> you know, that, that very menacing, you know, chilling conversation that you have with it on, uh, oh man, I'm even forgetting the name of the planet. This is a sign that I need to play the series again. But you're you're sitting there in what you think is the base of the big bad, and you're like, oh dear, this is much worse than I thought. Yeah, I think the smaller scale stories can lead into the bigger ones in that way, and you can maybe perhaps by having some of the smaller scale stuff first, it allows you to keep some of that as you as you go larger. I don't know. What do you guys think? I know I did every side mission in Mass Effect. Yeah, because I did all too. those little stories are what fleshed out the world. I like the analogy of side missions because from the aspect of the how much is my character involved standpoint, the idea that sometimes players should be able to do things that matter to them on a smaller scale or that affect them as as people, as humans, rather than going against the big plot. This is a bit of a stretch, but if you'll allow me to go biblical for a moment. That is why we're here. The idea that... You have heard it said before that there are Jesus spends more time talking about how to handle your money than he does directly about heaven and hell. You guys would agree with me that that doesn't mean that the one is more important than the other. It's that between now and the time that I die, I only have so many decisions to make about heaven and hell, and I have an awful lot of decisions to make about how to handle my money. And, mm -hmm. you know, what kind of a person am I going to be? What kind of dad am I going to be? Those are the decisions that we have to make that really affect our day-to-day -day lives once we have made sort of the broad decision of whose team we are on, as I like to tell my three-year-old. It's like, I'm definitely on Jesus' team, and here's what that means. Now, today, are you going to be nice to your sister? I think as GMs, it's easy to make a story about the cosmic stuff and not so much be afraid of the smaller state stuff as we are forget that that's even a kind of story that our players like to play. Yeah. And, and it's important to remember, too, that they are no less important for being these small details in our lives. I mean, that's that's why I wanted to include that story from Genesis of Jacob and Esau and Esau selling his birthright for one meal. It's a small sort of thing, you know, but it matters in the lives of both of them and in the history of Israel and in the, the history of the world. Yes, that was some expensive stew. It was very expensive stew, but that decision changed both of their lives and the, the, the lives of the Israelites who came after him. Mm -hmm. Just because it's a small moment in time for relatively small stakes does not mean that the implications of that are necessarily small and unimportant. Well, and I mean, I think we can all point to small individual moments in our own lives where some little tiny decision made a huge difference. I'll mm -hmm. give you a personal example. I think probably one of the most life-changing decisions I have ever made was the decision to pick up a very beat-up old copy of the GURPS core book from a used bookstore when I was in high school <laughs> and had basically had no experience with RPGs at all. Yep. I have made friends, gotten on a podcast, become a published author, all sorts of things based on a series of decisions that can be traced back to that one little purchase. Yes. There's a beat-to-pieces copy of 
Sort of Shannara by Terry Brooks that I picked up in sixth grade, at which point I decided, hey, maybe I'm a sci-fi fantasy type person. And that was immediately followed by the, hey, maybe I do like these role-playing games. So I have a very similar, very similar history. It's like, if I had not just grabbed this $3 book, who knows what kind of person that I would have turned out to be. So we've talked a lot about why this is important and the kinds of stories that we can tell when we're focusing on the small stakes and small dramas as compared to the epic adventure. How do we make those small stakes stories, if you'll forgive the alliteration, engaging? How do we make them interesting to players who expect the hook of it's a epic quest to save the world? You can't see me stretching my arms out, but I'm doing it. Right, you know, it's, it's huge. It's huge. Um, How do we make it interesting? Speaking just for myself, and then I'll I'll kind of get out of the way because this is, I guess, a little bit flip. But I mean, if you come to me with that sort of a thing after my role playing career, my initial response is, "Oh, thank goodness, this should be interesting." Because <laughs> some of my favorite games have been for f- small stakes. I mean, to go back to Shannon, who we've had on before, she runs a an annual Trouble with Rose game, which is just madcap comedy talking animals stuff. I love those games. I have wonderful memories of both of those games at Fear the Con. Tiny, tiny, itty-bitty, little insignificant stakes. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, the, the Shadowrun game is smaller stakes. The Inspector's game is smaller stakes. I like small stakes games and stories. So you don't have to sell players like me a whole lot. Okay. Josh? I think depending on whether you're trying to sell your players, um, changing it up on more personal or less global? Like, are we talking about, I want an adventure that's more emotional and more directly related to your character? Or are we talking about, I want something that doesn't affect the whole world, but it's a nice change of pace where you guys have to go back to your hometown? I would say either way you go, talking to your players and letting them know that you're thinking about changing things, if it's an existing campaign, is probably a good idea. That's pretty good GMing advice on the whole. I would also mm-hmm. say you might want to avoid calling it small stakes. If you're worried that your players might not be on board, don't call it small stakes. Maybe call it something like more personal stakes. Because really what you're arguing is not against a cosmic story so much as you're arguing for a story that's more specific to their characters. Right. Framing it in a positive manner rather than a negative manner, contrasting it against something else. I got you. Well, and I think that's another really important point that Josh has hit upon there is that you can present this as, look, this isn't the story about how your characters react to events in the world. This is a story about how your characters react to each other. Mm -hmm. It is about you. It is not about how you deal with things out there. Right. Or what your characters do to affect things rather than the adventure that your characters are sort of swept along Mm -hmm. any other epic hero would do. You know, we're getting away from the monomyth style of of epic adventure and getting into some real decisions that depend on a character. (laughs) I I like the, the bifurcation you set up there, Josh, of focusing on the character versus focusing on small locations, because I am a huge fan of games set in small locations or centered on small locations that the players 
and characters get to know very, very well. Uh, it's what the Inspector's Game was framed as. It's one city. And there are certainly movies and stories that take the entire thing takes place on a submarine or the t- entire thing takes, takes place inside of a football stadium or, or at least all the on-screen parts of it do. And mm-hmm. nobody complains that those stories are boring. It's kind of the, all right, let's just frame our expectations for it. This is the kind of story that we're telling. I mean, heck, have you seen Phone Booth? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I don't know. There are stories that take place, you know, movies that are, everything is within this one hotel, things like that. And there's plenty of drama in those. To kind of pull it back together, I think there is some truth in the idea that when you reduce the physical geographic scope of a game, you can zoom in a little more on the players and their emotions because a particular character can have more real personal interaction with characters at that scale. It's not impossible in those epic stories, but it's more real. We we understand it better because it's the scale at which we live on a regular basis when, you know, my character is talking to a shopkeeper in the neighborhood that we have been campaigning in and that we really know well versus the leader of a whole planet somewhere that we're going to talk to real quick and then run away. Mm-hmm. The scope is very different and there's you can have a better more personal interaction, I think. And here I go equivocating again. I like both kinds. I I love exploring a new setting, but I also from time to time love saying I'd like, okay, let's really get to know what makes this character different or Okay, now I really want to see how these characters change over a couple of years of in-game time. Sure. Well, I mean, that's kind of the point of Doll, isn't it? You have a two-player game and an NPC. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's incredibly focused. Yeah, and the reaction that I tend to get when I play with people is that it is very creepy. Uh, it's one of those where, uh, because there's a talking toy in it, a doll, if you are an adult... It has a different feel to it, and I think if I were to play it with a kid, they might not find it as scary. But just the potential mm-hmm. that there's some, not in sort of like a criminal way, but just in a general way that you're transgressing sort of the innocence of childhood to an adult reads as as very creepy on a personal level. Well, and plus you think about what would make a doll talk, and that's really creepy. <laughs> <laughs> there's that. Uh, and the answer is my toddler, honestly. Yes. Um, <laughs> okay. <laughs> no, she she's hit that magical point where she's talking to her toys and ha- starting to have them talk back to her and have little conversations with them, and it's awesome. Everything so. is puppetry, huh? Oh, it's it's fantastic. All right. So, what else? What makes these interesting? Are there any particular tips that you can give someone who is running a game like this to keep it engaging? I'll tell you one that I think is a big important deal and that is when you're running these small stakes games it's very easy to have story hooks that only matter to a single character right the world is going to be destroyed matters to everyone who happens to live on that planet my family's shop is shutting down done incorrectly may only affect that single player character and nobody else not any of the other player characters maybe not any other npcs except the ones that that player character created and hasn't done much with. So I think it's vital when you're focusing on these small stories, whether they be 
small geographically or small in the sense of having a small focused cast of characters or both to make sure your story hooks engage multiple player characters and the stakes have to matter for multiple player characters. And that's good general GMing advice, but I think it's really important when you are giving up these really big, everybody has to be engaged because there's no way you wouldn't be kind of stories. Josh, I kind of want to prompt you directly here, since you're the one of the three of us who has a, a storytelling podcast specifically. Is there any of that kind of general format crossing advice that works particularly well in this kind of a situation? Uh, I appreciate the question. As Grant was talking, I was looking something up. I have sort of an answer, although it is technically a gaming product. If what we've been talking about on this episode just sounds too woo-woo, psychological, or indie story game for you, that you're interested in it, but you have no idea how to start it, there is a little one-page game hack that Levi Cornelson came out with several years ago, and I will send you to the link. It's called The Soap Opera, and the general idea is it's an add-on for any game, and it says basically give your players a little bit of XP or something like that to use it, and each player says, all right, I'm going to pick a couple of things off this list and say, this person in the game is now my nemesis, and this person right here I'm going to treat as my ward. So from now on, whenever this person is I feel endangered in some reason, in some way. I'm going to do everything I can to keep this person safe. And mm. This person over here, the second person, uh, whenever they're doing well, I'm going to try to do something to be even more impressive. And just adding maybe one or two of those per PC is enough to make the personal dimension of the game a lot more important especially if you give a little bit of some kind of experience reward or other in-game reward. Um, nice. What was the, the name of that it, again? It's called The Soap Opera. Yeah, it's just a little game hack that's like about one page long, and it's free and it's public domain. If I were to say more generally storytelling-wise, I think besides telling your other players that you want to play around with it and asking them what they care about, the thing I would just encourage you to do is look at some other book or movie that you like and try to steal from it and force it in there. Like maybe you do want to think, okay, if I were to make one or two sessions of our game more like a cop drama, what would that look like in our universe? And you know enough about those tropes that you could probably figure out a way to fit it in. Or if you want to make it more like a, okay, we're going to do the equivalent of my orc has to go to his high school reunion. What would the equivalent of that look like in our game? And if you can get a little buy-in from the other players, I guarantee you have, if not silly, definitely an interesting couple of sessions. You know, another one that comes to mind, another big detail to include to really make these small stakes games feel uh, like they have the, the right scope as they play out is to really focus on the consequences of player actions. I think in a lot of more epic games, we tend to sort of gloss over certain consequences. And some of this is the dungeon crawly hack and slash nature of things. You know, who cares what happens behind us? We're done. We're moving forward. But in these smaller games with more personal stakes, 
what happens after a decision is really, really important and can have lasting repercussions. And that's another place where I want to reference the Shadowrun game, because kind of with that implicit in the, you know, the first run that we went on, like, hey, you know, what you do is going to have consequences. We all sat down and were like, okay, we kind of like all of these normal, ordinary people just trying to make their way in the world that we've seen in this soda bottling plant that we just went through and scouted as temp workers. So how do we do this in such a way that none of them lose their jobs? Right. <laughs> Which is probably the first time a group of Shadowrunners has ever thought that. But Well, very possibly. But here's what I like about that. You guys thought of that ahead of time, and I did not have to beat you over the head with, look at the consequences of your actions as the GM. And I don't know that I would have necessarily, but if you're not careful, I think a GM who's trying to establish that actions have consequences does so only by letting the players take actions and then presenting the worst possible consequence to the players and saying, aha, look what you did. I am punishing you for making a decision without having told you that your decisions have consequences and indicating that and foreshadowing that. So I think it's really important to set that up ahead of time and really make sure your players understand, not just out of game, hey guys, your actions will have consequences, but show that what you do on these really minor things that don't have any meaningful emotional consequence affects the world around them. Another trap that a lot of GMs fall into is the assumption that consequences means something bad. Yeah. <laughs> consequences means a result, not something bad. So yeah, it's very true. Your actions can have good consequences in the world that you didn't anticipate. I mean, you now one of our players basically created another Shadowrunner in that first run that has helped us out before. That wasn't something that any of the rest of us even anticipated, I don't think. You can do some some act, you know, out of kindness or in that case kind of a petty revenge against uh, corporate tyranny and you know, maybe it it doesn't have to result in you getting squashed like a bug or nothing happening. Maybe something unexpected and good can come out of that every once in a while. Mm -hmm. Not everything has to be grim dark. <laughs> or they could even be interesting or neutral or weird. And still, yeah. it's still a fun result, even if it's sort of like, which of these two forces am I betting on? And maybe neither of them is secretly a big bad. Maybe it's just, okay, now. Now let's find out the results of you backing this side rather than the other. Yeah, it's an excellent point. I mean, a lot of like business dramas will kind of go that way. You know, this company does this or that thing and this company does this or that thing. And neither one of them is terribly evil, but the protagonist works for this one. So let's see if we can beat the other one in the marketplace or. Right. Yeah. Those are not life and death stories. Yeah. They're not epic adventures, but they are still tense and filled with drama. Sometimes melodramatic because storytellers sometimes think, well, this isn't dramatic enough. It's just the story of whether or not thousands of people lose their jobs. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's not dramatic <laughs> at all. We need to throw a romance in there, too, to really amp the drama up. But the melodrama aside, those are life-changing stories, but they are not the world is about to be devoured by Galactus. While we've got Josh here, I also want to ask him to go on the other axis a little bit as opposed to, like, smaller casts or smaller geographic scales. Mm -hmm. Do you have anything in particular that works for the less threatening type of stories where 
like you referenced with Alice in Wonderland or The Wizard of Oz at the beginning where the scope of the story may be fairly large. I mean, you know, the, the characters have, in both of those have wound up in what's essentially an alternate universe. Mm-hmm. Sure. I mean, theoretically, you could say that Dorothy saves the kingdom. Yeah. Yes. But there's not mortal peril involved. Right. Well, I think that's an excellent question, and there's more than one good direction to go. When I have been trying to think of heroin hacks and when I've trying to think of other games that I would want to play, if not publish. I try to come up with a list of all of the things that could go wrong or that a character could be worried about that aren't overplayed, that aren't the default. One way you could think of it is, what is a character afraid of or what does a character care about other than life and death? You know, I suppose you could make an entire game just on the threat of possibly having to do some public speaking although that's kind of a ridiculous example. There's one that I'm working on in the background now about what happens when players have to attend a funeral for a friend. You know, nobody dies at the funeral, but it's still kind of a dramatic place to be, and there's a lot of things that can go on. at Like, there's a lot of story to tell at a funeral. Yeah. Other ones, you know, obvious, potentially big scope, but uh, low death Options are things about kidnapping or things about who's in charge of the government. Those are still pretty big scope in the world, but rarely in a presidential election does one of the frontrunners die partway through. That's just not the stakes that are involved in the story, even though a whole lot rides on the outcome. Yeah, politics is definitely one where you certainly have a lot riding on the outcome, but uh, especially in a Western nation, the chance of somebody being violently done in by their opposition is pretty low. That's just not how the process works anymore. If you go back to the Middle Ages, it might be a little different. But uh, Or the 1800s. I was reading an article the other day about a local election. It was right after Reconstruction, or during Reconstruction, these very corrupt people basically each claiming that they had won the election, and it ended up in basically a thousand-man armed standoff in City Hall. Mm-hmm. Oh, <laughs> It's not as far back as we think, but at the same time, we look at that and go, really? In that day and age? Yeah. The fact that it's an exception makes it interesting. Another way to kind of tweak with the danger level, still make it feel like there's a lot at stake even if violence is completely off the table, is to change the age of the characters. We all had a lot going on in our childhood, but hopefully for most of us, it was not... Violence wasn't the drama that we had to deal with. Fitting in, trying to figure out who we are as people, getting our needs and our wants met were huge issues, even more than they are now when we were adolescents or when we were kids. But I, for example, I don't think I was ever beat up as a kid unless you count wrestling with my brother, which I don't really. Um, well, no. But there was still plenty of drama and plenty of stories I could tell you. I wonder if that's some of the appeal of games like Monster Hearts. They put this kind of fantastic spin on what is essentially teenage drama, and it's sort of comforting to be able to go back to that simpler time in our lives, quote unquote, where those petty dramas were the centerpiece of our existence and that was our main concern. I wonder if that's some of why those games have popularity. It's an escape back to those smaller stakes 
mm-hmm. stories that we had uh, that were our everyday lives in high school. Yeah. The dirty secret is, yes, the stakes are lower, but we were also a lot more powerless then. So it's like our ability to take care of our own needs was proportionately less. So the oh, stakes course. still feel much, you know, still feel plenty high. Yeah. I mean, there's a reason that people who go through the really traumatic stuff look at that and just kind of go, why are you worrying about that? That doesn't matter. <laughs> they have perspective on it. And they have had to step up and really deal with some very hard things that your average teenager, hopefully, never has to. Mm-hmm. Well, do we have anything else to bring to the table on this one? I don't have anything big and obvious. I, it's fun for me to talk about this stuff. Good. Well, listen, Josh, I want to thank you for coming on. It's been a real pleasure. Well, thank you. Yeah, it's been great having you. Yep. Any closing thoughts or anything you have upcoming that you want to plug? Anything along those lines? Stay tuned for more crazy ideas from me. Find me online and say nice things, and I promise I'll say nice things back to you. Yep, we'll have links to Ginger Goat Games, and tell me another, we'll have linked in the show notes as well. So, from all of us here at Saving the Game, thanks for listening, and have a good one, folks. See you later. Bye. This podcast episode is a production of Saving the Game and may be redistributed under a Creative Commons non-commercial, non-derivative license, so long as appropriate credit is given. Our music is by Ryan Humphrey. Saving the Game is syndicated through inroadsministries.com, rpgpodcasts.com, stitcher.com, and iTunes. To hear past episodes and to connect with us or our community of listeners, visit our website at savingthegamepodcast.org. God bless, and happy gaming.